Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are very pleased to have with us today Rabbi Yitzchak Blau. Rabbi Blau received his master's degree in medieval Jewish history from the Bernard Revel Graduate School and earned his rabbinic ordination, Smicha, from Yeshiva University's REITS program. Rabbi Blau is the author of Fresh Fruit and Vintage Wine, The Ethics and Wisdom of the Agadah. He also serves as an associate editor of Tradition Journal. Blau has taught at numerous Torah institutions and is currently the Rosh Yeshiva of Jerusalem-based Yeshiva Toraita. And today we will be discussing the outstanding 19th century Jewish personality, Rabbi Shimshon Referral Hirsch. Here is a uh, copy of uh, the volume of the collected writings of Rav Hirsch. And specifically, we will be looking at the fascinating topic of Rav Hirsch's unique optimism vis-a-vis towards humanity. Um, just to get started again, thank you very much. Very glad we appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Um, just to get started, the background, what were the early influences that shaped Samson referral Hirsch? Okay, so Rav Hirsch, as you mentioned, is a 19th century figure. He lived from 1808 to 1888. And it's a time in uh, German orthodoxy where there's a greater openness to the broader world. So he was influenced by his family. And he had two rabbeim. One is Rav Yaakov Etlinger, known more as the Aruch Lener, and Chacham Yitzchak Bernay. And the commonality of both of them is they both had some degree of secular education. Aruch Lener did spend a year in university. Uh, Rav Hirsch himself ended up spending a year in university. So I think there's a sense of uh, kind of the broader world as being a less intimidating place. And Rav Hirsch was, I believe, very much influenced by that. And uh, clearly, one of his uh, slogans, the slogan he's most associated with, of Torim Derech Eretz, again, argues that Torah is meant to be combined with uh, other disciplines. And last point on this, uh, in this field, even the schools he set up, right? He set up a series of Orthodox schools in Frankfurt. And it turns out that they all had a secular education, which was not necessarily the assumption throughout most of Jewish history. Uh, having mentioned Frankfurt, a- after an illustrious career where he also served as the chief rabbi of Moravia, why did Rav Hirsch take on the rabbinical position in Frankfurt in 1851? Okay, so that's a great question. I'm actually not 100% sure that I have the definitive answer, so maybe I'll talk a little bit around the question if that's okay. That's fine. But I think you're, you're raising a very good point. People don't realize, it's, it's, I think it's interesting how, you know, rabbinic uh, Jews often get associated with a particular pulpit, and then you forget that they might have served elsewhere also. Just to use another example, did someone speak about um, Ramosha Feinstein yet in this context? Uh, no. no. Okay, so I think for all of us, oh, Ramosha Feinstein, he's a rabbi in the Lower East Side. It doesn't occur to us that he was a rabbi in Russia for several years before he came to America. I don't remember the exact amount of years, but it wasn't two. It was a significant amount. So Rav Hirsch is very much associated with Frankfurt. That's where he made his mark. But as you point out correctly, he was a rabbi in several other pulpits for a good 20 years beforehand. I would even go a step further and say not only was he a rabbi elsewhere, but some of his significant writings precede Frankfurt. 
He wrote the 19 letters and Chorev both in a previous rabbinical position before he came to Frankfurt. Uh, that being said, when in 1851 he moves to Frankfurt and then spends 37 years there, ultimately posterity thinks about him as being a rub in Frankfurt. And maybe that institutionally and as a representative of um, a certain stream in orthodoxy, that happened more in Frankfurt. And he made a lot of communal decisions there in terms of a school system. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit. He was in favor of the Orthodox community seceding from the larger Jewish community, namely being a separate political body vis-a-vis the German government. And I think most of those things happened in Frankfurt. So I don't know that I've really answered your question, but uh, I'm not sure I know the answer, but I will say that he did do significant rabbinic work prior to Frankfurt and yet is colloquially known as the Rav of Frankfurt Jewry. That's fine. Um, you had mentioned now um, Rav Hirsch's works. What are the main writings of Hirsch and what is unique about the diversity in his writing? Okay, excellent question. Okay, so again, just to maybe go in chronological order. So he has a book called The 19 Letters in the original is Egeret Safun, which is a, a dialogue with a younger Jew who's looking for guidance. It's a little bit of like a YB observant book. Uh, he has a sefer called Chorev, which goes through all the mitzvot. Uh, he is most well known for his commentary on Chumash. And here there really are a couple of unique aspects, which uh, I think you're alluding to. Okay, Number one, I always have the following dilemma. Okay, You know, as a teacher, I like to read sources in Hebrew. And if my students say, can we read in English? I'll say, but you always lose something in translation. So, of course, you should read the Ibn Ezra in the original Hebrew and not in uh, translation to English. Unfortunately, my argument breaks down when we get to Rav Now, I usually insist I do Rav in Hebrew anyway, but it is quite fascinating that Rav chose to write his commentary in German. So, arguably, the Hebrew is no less, uh, no more authentic to the original than the English translations. And it is kind of telling that Rehearsed chose to write a German translation. It's supposed to be a very flowery German. Unfortunately, I do not, you know, speak German well enough to really evaluate that. But that, I think, is already a kind of an intriguing decision. Uh, secondly, I wouldn't say he's absolutely unique, but... I would say the realm of Tameh HaMitzvot, of giving rational explanations and symbolic explanations for mitzvot, plays an extremely large role in Rav Hirsch's commentary. In fact, when people ask me, I know I'm personally that kind of person. I'm very interested in having a rationale for what I do. It's hard for me to be told, uh, you know, just do it because the authority says so. So when I'm looking for Tameh HaMitzvot, I almost feel like one of the, like the three pillars of Judaism and ra- finding rationales for mitzvot I would say, you know, it's the Rambam's Mernavuchim and the Sefer Achinoch and Rav Hirsch. And I would say Rav Hirsch even goes further in that the Rambam will often explain the reasons for the mitzvah in general, and Rav Hirsch will explain every detail. Just to give you an example, to give you a little bit of the flavor, like let's say I wanted to explain why we wear tefillin. So I could give a very generic explanation of what tefillin symbolizes. But will I also try to explain why there's a Shoyad and a Shalrosh? Why the Shalyad and the Shosh have particular passages? Why I put one on before I put on the other? Right? Do I get into every, why are they black? Right? Do I get to every detail 
and try to explain some kind of meaning and symbolic significance. And there, I would say, Ravirsh is the one who really does so. So again, I think his commentary on Humash is significant. We'll suggest, we'll discuss some of the main ideas later, but one thing I want to highlight is the role of Tommy Hemitzvot. There was also a Jewish journal called Yeshurun, which again, every once in a while, I, I, I wish I spoke German because I'd love to like go back and read the essays. But uh, where he wrote a lot of essays, uh, thankfully they've been translated. So you may have seen some volumes called things like Judaism Eternal or the Collected Writings of Rav Hirsch, where you do get a sense of the uh, important ideas Rav Hirsch was trying to convey in those essays. Maybe I'll just highlight two things. Um, he had a running debate with a man named Rav Bamberger, a different Rav, about this issue of seceding from the Jewish community. And it's quite fascinating. It shows you that things are unpredictable. Rav Hirsch was much more worldly, had a much more of a secular education than Rav Bamberger. But Rav Hirsch was the one who insisted on seceding. Rav Bamberger was more in favor of maintaining Jewish unity. Let's be a unified body vis-a-vis the non-Jewish German authorities. And Rav Hirsch was insistent that due to the great ideological gaps with reform, we'll have to be a separate and independent body. So that was a running dialogue. Reverse also was often very critical of some more academic approaches to Judaism. So he would also discuss things like Zechariah Frankel and Gretz. That also finds uh, expression in those essays. So I would basically say there are four major things I would focus on. Okay, again, the 19 letters, Chorev, uh, his commentary on Humash, and the essays uh, which are collected in various collections. We'll we'll get now to a couple of um, uh, verses from from the Humash and his commentary on it, uh, and, and this is based on some of the sources which that you provided uh, beforehand. Uh, if I did not come up with these myself, um, so uh, in in terms of Hirsch's um, approach towards humanity, one of the sources um, that that you had. Uh, uh, graciously uh, provided was the the claw of the curse that was given to Adam Arishon to, to 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 man after the forbidden act, and it seems from my reading of Hirsch that Hirsch says that is not really a curse on man, and goes into a whole explanation of why not. And so, how does that explanation tie into this concept of optimism towards humanity? Okay, terrific. So sometimes I think when one's analyzing a thinker, it pays to maybe think who they're reacting to or what they're polemicizing against. So uh, as you said, I think what first does have an optimistic optimistic approach to humanity, which we'll see several manifestations of that. And clearly, if you're a religious Jew and you know a little bit of the history of Christianity, right, so the doctrine of original sin is certainly lurking there as a potential rival to a more optimistic conception. Uh, Now, I apologize. I don't know if we have any Christian listeners, but I'm going to oversimplify a little bit. Okay, but uh, I guess we're safe here. Okay, but many Christian thinkers will talk about kind of an inherent corruption of humanity. Like once Adam and Eve sin, it becomes a part and parcel of what it means to be a human being to the extent that salvation cannot be achieved independently anymore. Like we need, uh, you know, Jesus to die for humanity that's the only dramatic thing that could redeem this corrupt uh, institution. So that is something Rav Hirsch is very against. Rav Hirsch thinks that's not a Jewish concept. Uh, 
that Judaism believes with all the difficulties, humanity is capable of greatness. Humanity can use its free will to do great things. And therefore, I think he wants to polemicize to some degree against original sin. So it's very interesting what he does here, because often if you're writing a parish on Chumash, I think it's very interesting because a parish on Chumash could also be a book of Jewish theology. Like it's hard to not discuss theology in Chumash, but you end up kind of on two tracks. There's got kind of like a, a literary interpretive track, like you're reading the words very carefully. And there's simultaneously kind of this theological track. And obviously in an ideal universe, they'd go together. So here, in terms of what Rav Hirsch does, I think he does an interesting move on the literary plane. He says, it's true that God reacts to this sin. And he responds, let's say, to the snake and to Chava and to Adam. But Rav Hirsch says, let's do a close reading and see where the verb arur, or, or the word arur appears. What exactly is cursed in this narrative? So the Nachash is cursed. There's no denying that. But when God speaks Tadam, it doesn't say Arur Adam. It's the Adama that is cursed, says Rav Hirsch. And Rav Hirsch is very adamant about that. And he says that the implicit message is that humanity has not shifted in a dramatic way. Meaning what has happened as a result of the sin, the conditions with which, which, in which, excuse me, humanity functions changes, right? Now, Kotz V'dardar Tatzmiachach. It will be more difficult to cultivate the land. But that doesn't mean that there's been a shift in the very soul of humanity. There is no arur applied to humanity. And therefore, first reads this section again, and he's very explicitly arguing with the Christian view. There's no doctrine of original sin here. Humanity is not inherently corrupt. Humanity is still capable of achieving salvation on, based on its own efforts. And, and where... Where do we see that humanity um, is able to achieve greatness before this, before this, before this episode? In other words, there's a, there's an assumption here that humanity was able to achieve, and now we have the sin which negates that. What's the source for the greatness of humanity before the sin? Okay, so that that's a really good question. Um, I'll say two things. Uh, one, you know, sometimes someone asks you for a source and it's hard to come up with a particular source because it's, but not because it's not true, but because it's kind of maybe an assumption running through a tradition. So that's one thing I would say here that I think if one goes to Jewish tradition, both in Tanakh and Chazal, again, to use Christianity as a foil, Right. There's a sense. Even think about, I know you've been given a choice. How safe Farm says that, right? And it seems pretty clear that humanity could choose, right? They could choose to adhere to the word of God and follow Jewish ideals. And they could choose to reject it. And I think going through Chazal, one again, gets the very same sense. And it's very hard to find a source which says, oh, actually, you can't do it on, again, I admit, if you went to the totality of Chazal, you could probably find one or two sources. But I, I certainly think the main thrust is against the idea that you need help. Even to give you an example, okay, vicarious atonement, this idea that somebody else dies on your behalf, I can't say it has no place in Judaism. I could think of one or two sources, but I do think it's safe to say it plays a much, much more minimal role than it does in Christian thought. 
And even when it comes up, I don't think it comes up in the background of the sense that this is the only route to salvation. Like, since you are so negative a creature, well, you better have Jesus dying for you. So I think my first answer to your question would be, I, I think it's really just the assumption running through our tradition. Maybe our first doesn't really need to highlight a particular source. If he wanted to, I do think there are certain things he could highlight. Um, let's say the famous passage in Tehillim Perkhet, which talks about, again, talks about both the difficulty of humanity, but how humanity is almost like the angels, right? So I think, again, I don't know if I could quote a puzzle before Paragimel. I agree with you. No, but you know what? Actually, maybe I'll even go further. Maybe we'll go back for a second. Maybe even, you know, I'm glad you pushed me in this, okay? Because uh, I didn't really think about this beforehand, but uh, it's been very fruitful. So thank you. Maybe even in the creation story in Paragalif. Maybe you have a sense of humanity as the pinnacle of creation. And obviously the term Tselem Elohim comes up there. And none of the other creatures in the created order seem to be Tselem Elohim. So maybe that also is giving a certain dignity and majesty to who humanity is. So, uh, yeah, maybe Rav Hirsch would say, read Paragalv carefully. When once we have Nas Adam Bid Salmenu, okay, that is, uh, that's who humanity is. In in Sefer Brichid in Genesis, we find two verses, two psuki that use the word yetzer. Um, we have in in the sixth uh, the sixth chapter where it says yetzer machshavot libo rakurakolayom, and I'm not going to translate yetzer yet because that would miss the whole thing. But something is in man's heart which is ra, which is evil, constantly. And then after the flood, we have Yetzer Lev. The heart of man is Ra, is evil, is bad from his youth. Now, I, I know that, you know, we, we very glibly probably use the term Yetzer Hara all the time. And we, sometimes we maybe bang this into our kids, to Yetzer Hara, to Yetzer Hara. How is Hirsch explaining this phrase? And again, how does that tie into optimism towards humanity? That's a great question. Because if I wanted to kind of defend the Christian side, as it were, so maybe Paragimel wouldn't be so helpful to me, but the two psikkim I would probably try to hang my hat on are what you just quoted. Like maybe Yetzer, Leva, Adam, Rami, Rav really is about, you know, this inherent corruption. But Rav Hirsch does an interesting move, and maybe there's a broader point of significance here, which it's funny, it just came up for me last night. Okay, it's very good to be sensitive to language, but I think one has to be very careful that language is dynamic and what words mean change over time. So to be fair to Rav Hirsch, like our colloquial usage of Yetzer Hara might really not be what Yetzer means in Sefer Breshit. Just to give you an example, this just came to me yesterday. I was learning with a student, a very fine student, and the word Damim came up. So he is more of a Talmudic fellow. So he thinks, right, wait, Damim is money. But it seems to me in Tanakh, Damim always has to do with murder and life, right? And it's, it's, I don't think it means money once in Tanakh. So one has to be a little bit careful about that. So Rav Hirsch here does not think Yetzer means uh, like our inner drive to do the wrong thing. He thinks Yetzer is actually something that we create, okay? that we have ideals. Sometimes we have more noble ideals. Sometimes, unfortunately, we have ideals we really shouldn't be standing for. 
And we create that at some point in life. So it's not, again, this kind of artificial force or external force moving us or even compelling us to do the wrong thing. But rather, it's the product of our choices. And just to go one step further, he has an interesting take on the Pasuk with Nurav, where he says that what is Narut, what is youth? It is a time where we strive for independence. Okay, and I think all of us are like that. Like most sixteen-year-olds do not like to be told what to do, no matter who is telling us what what to do. So at that point, but notice, refers even there goes to the optimism and says that's not always a bad thing, right? That obviously could have negative manifestations, but there's also the kind of this youthful desire to like, to make the world a better place, and sometimes it's specifically you know older, more jaded people who have a more corrupt uh, approach to existence. So I would say here also Refersh maintains his optimistic insistence. And he does it, I would say, with these two strategies that Yetzer for him is not this compelling force from the outside. Right? Yetzer is more a product of our choices. And also this focus on Nurav where, yeah, but take it as a double-edged sword. That Nurav has this danger of, you know, throwing off the yoke of authority. Uh, this insistent on absolute independence. But Nurav also has a positive manifestation and this desire to, you know, get beyond where we are and really revolutionize the world in a positive way.